Let me do a little more honor to the Lord Jesus Christ before we get into verse 21. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross with a loud voice cried, It is finished. The work of redemption was finished. He suffered once for our sins. As 1 Peter 3.18 describes, I'd like to turn you to Colossians chapter 2 to be reminded of a special place there that Jesus didn't need to go to hell and wrestle with the devil. That would have been way too easy for Him. What kind of a wrestling match would that be, the Lord Jesus Christ with the devil? Honestly, how many seconds would it last? Would it make it the full first round of a wrestling match? Did the devils have to beg Jesus Christ for permission to enter a a herd of swine? Do you know what the big issue was that the devil had over the Lord Jesus Christ and over us? It was God's justice for our sins. So that's the big issue. Because God had said, The soul that sinneth it shall die, and the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Adam ate for us. We were under condemnation of sin and death and hell, and the Lord Jesus Christ broke that by satisfying God for us. The devil and Jesus in a wrestling match. Come on. Who created the devil? The Lord Jesus Christ. Devils know Jesus, and they know Paul who preached Jesus, but they didn't know the Jewish gypsies in Acts chapter 19. Colossians 2, verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, this, these are spiritual realms, and having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In what? The last word of the previous verse. Or the last two words, His cross. The Lord Jesus Christ spoiled principalities and powers. Spiritual rulers in the darkness of this world. He made a show of them openly by dying on the cross. He humiliated them. He disgraced them. He he destroyed them. Triumphing over them in it. They thought they had the Lord Jesus Christ because He was dying on the cross. But by that death, He redeemed His people and took the claim that the devil had against us away, which was God's own justice for our sins. Remember that verse. Let me read it to you a third time. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he took away from the devil those that were the devils by the claim of God's law against God, you and me. He spoiled principalities. That's the spoil of the warfare. Jesus won the war. He got to take away whatever he wanted to carry home. And what did he want to carry home? You and me. And He's preparing a place for us and we'll spend eternity with them. He made a show of them openly. Triumphing over them in it. There's not a history book that you can read. There's not a book of philosophy that you can read that will tell you about this transcendent event. But the Bible tells us about it. Jesus Christ took on the justice and holiness of God, the claims of God's law against us, the devil that had got us into the predicament and destroyed them all. Death has no fear for us. We can mock death now. There's no penal claim on it against us. It's simply a way to get rid of our bodies. Lord, thank you for that privilege to get rid of these bodies and to be given new ones. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 2. One more reference. Jesus did not go to hell and wrestle with the devil, nor did He accomplish any of our redemption in hell. 
It was finished on the cross. He said it was finished. And I want to show you the words of God. Colossians 2 said he made an open show of the devil. I love a victor like that. I love domination. I don't like close games. I don't want to watch Michigan and Ohio State next Saturday and have Michigan barely beat Ohio State. Don't laugh out loud. Uh, You already are. I don't like... Listen, there are no close games in the Bible. Do you know that? There's no... It's total victory. And He made an open show of them triumphing over them in the cross. Here's a further explanation. Hebrews 2.14 For as much then... i got to back up. You hear this verse 13 from me all the time. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Who is saying those words? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is He saying those words about? You and me. Behold... Father, behold, I and the children which Thou hast given me, all of us will be there. For as much then as the children, that's you and me, are partakers of flesh and blood, that's you and me, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. That means a flesh and blood body that through death He might destroy Him that had the power of death That is, the devil. Because when God said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, Jesus Christ wiped that all out by His flesh and blood body that was specially prepared for Him. Hebrews chapter 10, that some of you read last evening. And here, this verse tells us where it was accomplished. By His death, on the cross, He defeated the devil. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Because of your kind attention... And because I have preached 1 Peter 3.21 to you before, I am going to try not to take long with it. Remember that my intent is to be very short. I love this verse. I thank God for this verse. I have read works on baptism that don't even deal with 1 Peter 3.21. And if you read the whole New Testament, 1 Peter 3.21 is the most definitive statement about baptism in the whole New Testament. It says more about baptism in this one verse. And you know, Peter went, Peter chased a rabbit by the Holy Spirit. Peter chased a rabbit, and that rabbit was Noah and the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah to a generation that had 120 years to repent and obey, and they didn't, and so the flood came. And since he's talking about the ark, he gives by the Holy Spirit, he moves into baptism, and we start out with the words, the like figure. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto Him. Give me a few minutes of your time and I'll review. If you want to see more, it's called Baptism Babel. It's a bunch of slides from two or three years ago done on a Wednesday evening. I love this verse. And we took it apart and there's, there's pictures there of the other modern translations of the Bible and how they corrupt this in the three ways that it shouldn't be corrupted. So ignoring my outline, let me try to explain 1 Peter 3.21 to you. There are five requirements for a Bible baptism. There needs to be a proper administrator. That's a person chosen by God to do the qualifying and the baptizing. That's a preacher of the gospel. 
There needs to be the proper doctrine. That is the doctrine that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the only Savior from sin. And your life should be one of discipleship to Him because He is Lord of all. That includes repentance, obviously, by what I just said. Now, there are three other requirements for a scriptural baptism. There needs to be the proper subject. The subject is the person that gets baptized. We are Baptists. That means we believe in believers' baptism. We hold to believers' baptism. A person has to be a believer before they're baptized for it to be a scriptural baptism. Then there is the proper mode. And that's the way that baptism is executed or done or performed. And it's by immersion or submersion in water and being raised up again out of that water. Then there needs to be the proper design. What is baptism for? Is it to wash away sins? Is it to regenerate you? Or is it for another purpose? The purpose of baptism is for you to give an answer of a good conscience toward God for already having regenerated you and for already delivering you and saving you from your sins by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This verse has all three. 95% of Christians do not believe baptism the Bible way. There's 1.1 million, billion, forgive me, 1.1 billion Roman Catholics, and then there there are the daughters of the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutherans and the Methodists, the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians, and others. And then there's the Orthodox that are just a branch off the, uh, they're the Eastern Catholic Church rather than the Western Catholic Church. And they all do babies. And they, they do sprinkling for the most part, though sometimes the Greek Orthodox will do a little bit of immersion of babies. But they understand that baptism saves. They believe that baptism washes away sins. They believe that baptism regenerates the soul. That that baptism saves. And that's a horrible premise to take about baptism because it involves you in all sorts of terrible difficulties. When we look at this verse, it says the like figure. Now, the like figure means that there is a figure in verse 21 and there must be a figure in verse 20. There are two figures being compared to each other. Because it also has the word also, just a few, it also has the word also. Just a few words later, it says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. How does a figurative ordinance save? It saves figuratively. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ's resurrection a figurative thing or a real thing? It is a real thing. But what do we do in baptism? We show a figurative picture of Jesus Christ's resurrection from a watery grave. Praise the Lord, baptism's wonderful. Amen. It's a figure. There was a figure in verse 20. Was the, did the ark really save, literally save Noah and his wife and sons and their wives from water? Did they not drown in a real way? So that's real. Is there something unreal in verse 20 that's figurative? It's the ark as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ark as a picture of Christ. Noah was chosen to go into that ark. God closed the door. The waters of judgment that came upon the earth lifted that ark up above all those that were scratching and clawing, trying to get their way into it. And Noah and his family were saved. They were carried far away and deposited in the mountains of Ararat of modern Turkey. But there was a, there was a picture there. Noah's family was saved like we're saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chosen in Him. He was prepared for us while the ark was a preparing. God's judgment poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ and He was lifted up and sits at the right hand of God and we are the beneficiaries of salvation through Him. 
Because it says the like figure. Got to have two figures. Now all the modern translations of the Bible say, when you open up verse Peter 3.21, that baptism was a figure of, that the Noah's Ark was a figure of baptism. I wouldn't want to be in an ark that's a figure of baptism, would you? That, that means it went down. Just ridiculous. Brother, I wish I had slides. I'm grieving right now that I don't have slides. I'm, I don't have slides to honor a few people that think it's less reverent. I think it's far more efficient at preaching God's Word. And at some point in time, my opinion will outweigh theirs and I'll have more slides. But right now, if I could show you a picture of, of the modern versions, you'll get fighting mad. We'll want to have a Bible burning. And then we'll get in the newspapers and then we'll be called a double cult. Because uh, it's what they do to this verse... There's three things that we want out of this verse. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That says, because you can take out what's in parentheses, that is a privilege of the English grammar. You can take out what's in parentheses to read the thought that's around the parentheses. And it says, baptism is a figurative ordinance that shows the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Period. They say, the ark was a figure of baptism taking away the figure of baptism itself. Oh, don't do that! Because that is not true. There's two figures, and baptism is a figure of resurrection, which means baptism has to be by immersion. Because you have to bury the person, then you have to raise them back up again to show the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then it says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Oh, they get excited about that word. As soon as you make the choice that baptism saves, you are in trouble. Once you accept the premise for your reasoning, then you will have to corrupt much more truth. If you say that baptism is what gets you eternal life, baptism washes away your sins, baptism regenerates you so that you're born again, you're in trouble. Since water may not be available for an immersion... You will invent sprinkling or pouring so that you can baptize in any place. Do you follow? Once you start, if this saves a person and there's a person about to die, it doesn't matter what age they are, they're about to die, you want to get them saved. I can't immerse them. There's no, there's no place around here to immerse them. I'll just pour a little water on them. So pouring and sprinkling becomes okay. Since water, you may, you'll invent sprinkling or pouring. Since many died in infancy, especially in the past, they comforted mothers by baptizing their little babies. If baptism saved, here's, here it goes, Roman Catholic Church. Do they believe in original sin? Yes, they do. If you believe in original sin, that means a baby has original sin and a baby has sin upon it because of Adam. If you believe that and baptism saves, what do you got to do? You got to bring baptism down, 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 all the way down to an infant baby. And since many died in infancy, they comforted mothers by baptizing their little babies. And the consistent heretics among them will also stuff the Lord's Supper in their little mouths. That's typically Presbyterians. But we go this far. Since infants miscarry, do lots of women have miscarriages? And baptism saves. Remember, you're a Catholic. Original sin, baptism saves. Ah, intrauterine baptisms. What's an intrauterine baptism? Well, it's spelled D-O-U-C-H-E. Can you figure it out now? Mark it on your calendars. My pastor has discretion. 
Unbelievable. Go on, go type it in. Intrauterine baptism in a Google search box. Have fun. Now, here comes along the Campbellite, the Church of Christ. We don't believe in original sin. We're not like the Catholics. I wish they were Catholic when it comes to that doctrine. We don't believe in original sin, but we believe that baptism saves. Therefore, we have an age of accountability that until they're baptized, and they're like Baptists, they came out of the Baptists, the Campbellites, the Church of Christ, Alexander and Thomas Campbell, they copied the Baptists, but they believed that baptism saved. So until you're old enough, 12 years of age, typically is an age picked to be baptized, then all those previous years you're under the age of accountability, so you have to invent another doctrine to, pro to protect you, called the age of accountability and deny original sin, because you know that infants weren't baptized in the Bible. You're Alexander Campbell. You're going through the page. There's no babies baptized. I can't go with the Catholics on infant baptism, but I know that baptism saves. I'm going to deny original sin, and I'll take up the age of accountability. This is what happens. Then you're a Mormon. Joseph Smith's baptism in an underground baptistry, only in a temple, not in these little churches they have around, but in a temple, underground baptistry, is where you've got to be baptized by a minister of the Mormon church in order to be saved, because baptism saves, but it's got to be a Mormon baptism. Well, all of my relatives didn't have a chance to meet Joseph Smith, so we're going to invent baptism for the dead. We've all been through this before. Do you understand where all this comes from? One false premise. Baptism saves. Baptism does not save. But the text says it saves. You say to me, and you should say to me, it says the text saves. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. How does a figure save? It saves figuratively. When Ananias told Paul in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. How did he mean it? Figuratively. Because look what we have in parentheses. We have the other two things that we want. First, let's go back and review the like figure of Jesus Christ's resurrection. Baptism has to show a picture of burial and resurrection because of what's in the first line of this verse and what's in the last line of this verse. That is the proper mode. Immersion is the proper mode of a baptism. Now we go to the first clause inside the parentheses. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Here Peter is clarifying, in case the word save troubled you, it does not put away the filth of the flesh. Do you know what modern translations do with those words? The dirt of the body. Baptism doesn't put away the dirt of the body. No one in the history of the Christian church has ever thought that baptism put away the dirt of the body. You're clothed, you're dipped one time, the dirt of your body does not go away. Where did that come from? That came from the devil to take and give, to take away the reproof of the heretics that believe baptism saves, which is the proper design. The proper design is not to save. The proper design is only for saved people to enter the waters of baptism to give God the answer of a good conscience that He gave them by saving them already. They change the words, filth of the flesh, to dirt of the body. There is so much more that could be said on this subject, so much more that's been put together. The only time... That this, uh, you don't want it. It doesn't matter. The only time this Greek word is used in the Bible is used over in Revelation chapter 22, where it says, He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Now, what filth do you think it's talking about? He that hasn't had a bath recently is going to remain in that condition for the rest of eternity? I love this verse. 
I'm so thankful for this verse. Are you willing? Would you be willing to die for this verse? Would you die based on this verse? Do you have enough confidence in this verse to die for it? The doctrine of baptism as it's described in this verse. Amen. There's no other verse like it in the New Testament that has this much jam-packed into one verse about baptism. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. The filth of the flesh are the sins of our old flesh nature. 2 Corinthians 7. You all, you know that though, don't you? I don't need to teach you that. This is where I like to go though. When somebody pulls this one on me, I say, I just can't accept that. I can't believe in bathtub holiness. I just can't accept that doctrine of bathtub holiness. You say, what are you talking about? This text. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If they're right in 1 Peter 3.21 that it's the dirt of the body, then over here it should be the dirt of the body. Let us cleanse ourselves from all dirt of the body, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They're a bunch of liars. And I'll tell you where the lie came from. There's a father of lies. John 8.44 says the devil is the father of lies. And the corruption in Christian circles, the Christian denominations and religions about baptism are enormous. And they're far-reaching because of one false premise. And when they get into this text, they don't want to see that. They can't have not the putting away of the filth of flesh because that's saying baptism doesn't save. And since they have committed their entire denomination or the mother harlot herself to the fact that baptism does save, they have to change the words. So they change the words. It doesn't take away the dirt of the body. So the, the verse has been corrupted twice. Baptism is no longer a figure. The ark was a figure of baptism. Baptism does put away sin. It just doesn't wash away the dirt of your body. Are you with me? Try to be fast. Okay, what's the next clause inside the parentheses? But the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, if baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God, when do you have the good conscience? Before, during, or after baptism? Before, because it's the answer of a good conscience. Somebody with a good conscience says, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And the, and the administrator says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he says, I believe in my good conscience that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let's stop this chariot and get down and do something about it. That's baptism. It's the answer of a good conscience. Does a baby have an active conscience? No, it does not. Infants do not have active consciences. So this, inside the parentheses, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God precludes, that means rejects, denies infants being baptized in one verse. So how do they get rid of it? It is the appeal for a good conscience. They do that in their Bibles. All of their Bibles. The New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, the New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version, all of them. It's an appeal for a good conscience. Because they go into the waters of baptism with a bad conscience, unregenerate, their sin's still on them, their sins are washed away, they get regenerated, and they come up with a good conscience. We go into baptism because we have a good conscience, because we've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins. And we want to be baptized to thank God for how He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. They corrupt that verse in the three points of doctrine. Now see... Sometimes when you show false versions, you show verses that are missing. 
The New International Version has 50 verse, 50 whole verses that are missing. 200 major chunks of verses that are missing. And that's what we typically go to because that's the easiest to show someone. Look at your NIV. It doesn't even have Acts 8.37. What is Acts 8.37? Does it apply to baptism? Well, Acts 8.36 is this. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If thou believest with... That's verse 36. Verse 37. You need to look at it and see that it's missing. But it won't be missing in your Bible, so you're going to have to pretend. Pretend with me and get upset with me. This verse is missing. It's just blank. They, you know what I love to do? I used to pass out false Bibles and ask some man who's never spoken in public before to stand and read Acts 8.37 from an NIV. You've been with, sometimes we've done that in, in Greenville. You know, the, poor, the poor man stands up and he's looking down at his Bible and there's silence for 10 seconds and I say, Sir, do you, do you see verse 36? Yes. Verse 38? Yes. Well, read the verse in between. But if you ever looked at these Bibles, there isn't a verse in between. But they keep the King James numbers to the end of the chapter. Is that so that their Bible versions will always line up with the numbering system of the King James Bible? Verse 36, And as they went on their way, this is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? This is a great question. He wants a doctrinal explanation for who gets to be baptized. I'm at Acts chapter 8 and verse 36. Who gets to be baptized? What hinders me? Is What prerequisites do I need to be baptized? What conditions do I need to meet in order to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. What does that do to infant baptisms? It condemns them. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was ready to give the answer of a good conscience. His conscience had been made clean by Peter, by Philip preaching to him from Isaiah 53 that Jesus Christ had come and suffered for the sins of others. Because Philip had preached Jesus to him from that passage of Scripture. That whole verse is missing. That whole verse is missing. But let's go back to 1 Peter 3.21. What do they do? It's an appeal for a good conscience. Does basically every other Christian denomination agree with us on a proper administrator? Yes, if we charitably say that Roman Catholic priests are administrators. Okay, but they, they don't let anybody baptize in a Roman Catholic church. It's the priests that do it. So let's just go ahead and say that we agree on the proper administrator. How about the proper doctrine? Do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Eternal Son. But let's just give... Can we give it to them charitably just to ignore that point for the moment? So there's three left. The proper subject. Who gets baptized? In the Bible. If you believe with all your heart, you may... It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Infants don't have consciences toward God. Infants don't have consciences that are active. Infants cannot recognize right and wrong. Infants do not accuse or excuse themselves, which is the function of a conscience. So it rules out infant baptism because it says the answer of a good conscience toward God. So they change it, the appeal for a good conscience. How much tampering with the Word of God did Satan do in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? One word. 
Then there's the proper mode. The proper mode is how you do baptism. It has to be a figurative picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from this text. Can we go to other texts to prove the same thing? Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, that were baptized into his death, as many of you were planted in Christ Jesus. You know, when you plant something, you put it underground. You don't lay it on the sidewalk. You put it underground. What do they do with that? The like figure? The ark becomes a figure of baptism rather than baptism being a figure of Jesus Christ's resurrection. They corrupt this verse. We are in this small little group of Baptists and we are not Baptists by tradition. We are not Baptists because we are Baptists by tradition, but it's apostolic tradition. We are not Baptists because we're part of some Baptist denomination, association, or convention like the SBC. We are Baptists because we're like John the Baptist and we dip people in water and we only dip them in water after they have repented with an active conscience toward God, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we don't do it to wash away any sins at all because the text says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, and they change that, not the putting away of the dirt of the body, in order for them to still maintain. We do infants, it saves them. And we do it by sprinkling and pouring whatever turns us on at a, at a particular point in time. And then we take our big fat thumbs and we rub it in the form of a cross on their forehead. It's called Baptism Babel. If you type that into a search of our website, you'll find a set of slides called Baptism Babel. I love that verse right there. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's Mark 16. 15 and 16. Does that tell you anything about baptism? You've got to believe first. He that believeth and is baptized. All through, all through the pages of Scripture, believe first, then baptism. How? John 3.23. It says that John was baptizing in a place called Salem, near to Anan. In Anan, near to Salem? Which one is it, Orville? Anan, near to Salem? Thank you. Why was he baptizing there? Because there was much water. Isn't that wonderful in the Bible? Things like that, just telling us. When Philip and the eunuch had their baptism there at the certain water in the middle of the desert, did Philip go down to the water and bring up some water in order to pour it over the eunuch's head, or did they both go down into the water? And did they both come up out of the water? Did John and Jesus both go down into the water, and did they both come up out of the water? Did some of those martyrs that Brother Stephen brought us over the past year die for the doctrine of baptism? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. I love our doctrine of baptism. Are you willing to be a fool for Jesus' sake? Dip me deep in the river. Bury me. Submerge me. Bring me up again. Thank you, Lord. Now look at Peter. He chased. He went blasting off course with the Holy Ghost. This is, this, I love this passage. It's, it's a little more difficult at seeing his circuitous route. But verse 18 goes to verse 22. You can see that connection, right? Because it ends with Jesus being quickened or resurrected at the end of verse 18. And then there's resurrection again at the end of verse 21. And he leads right into his ascension into heaven. But in between, he laid some things on us that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have known fully before. We know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness to the antediluvians, but this tells us that it was by the Spirit of Christ by which he went and did that. And that they were disobedient to that preaching. You know, everyone was disobedient, but they were disobedient to the preaching. 
Because it says, which sometime were disobedient. We learned about the long-suffering of God while the ark was preparing. We learned that eight were saved. We know that from other places. But we also learned that the ark was a figure because there's two figures by the time we get in to the first part of 21 because it says the like figure. So we've got two. And we can see that. The ark was a figure of Christ and baptism is a figure of Christ. Now we come to this 22nd verse. Very easily you know it. Who has gone into heaven. Let's, let's love the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He just didn't rise from the dead. He then spent 40 days traveling among His apostles, showing Himself alive by many infallible proofs. Was He just a spirit? How did He prove He wasn't just a spirit? Did, did He do this? Did He say, Thomas? Did He eat and drink with them? That's all in the Bible for a reason. He wasn't a mirage, and He wasn't just a spirit that had taken on some appearance. He had His body back. That body. This is all glorious doctrine. You, there's heretics out there that say it was just the spirit, and it was an apparition that they were seeing. Oh, no, no, no. It was His body. Quickened. Because it says in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, His flesh body was quickened by the Spirit, but now He's gone into heaven. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11 describes it. The apostles are there standing with Him. He begins to lift right up out of their presence and disappears into the clouds. And they're just staring up there at the clouds and two men appear in white apparel. There were two angels and they said, Men of Galilee, what are you staring up into heaven for? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. And that is what we are waiting for. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back for us. And if He doesn't come back in time before it's time for you to die, you die cheerfully. You die expectantly. You die excitedly. Because the, the, the I don't even know how to define it. But the nanosecond your spirit leaves your body, you are going to be in the presence of the Lord. And He is the most gracious the most loving, the most receptive being you have ever met. And He will present you to the Father and you have no fears. He will embrace you. He died for you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, and the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and repeatedly says exactly where He is. He is at the right hand of God. And brethren, this is a man. This is a man with a flesh and blood body that we just read about in Hebrews 2.14. This is a man. He's God in the flesh, but he is a man. He is seated at the right hand of God. And recently I was able to preach to you from Revelation 4 and 5 that describes the inner circle. You know, there was a round about the throne, these different levels of beings. You know where we are? We're right up there with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're inside the angels. The four beasts are with us because they represent part of us. The four and twenty elders represent us. And we're inside the angels. The angel choirs around the outside. We're in the inner circle because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and He has died for us and we are joint heirs with Him and we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the time you get to heaven, we're all going to be brothers of Him because there is no male nor female in heaven. He's at the right hand of God, the right hand of power, execution, the executive office, the Lord Jesus Christ reigning over everything God accepted. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 27, all things are put under his feet. But he that put all things under his feet is obviously accepted, Paul wrote. Oh, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Did Peter, did Peter love the Lord Jesus Christ? Was it hard for Peter to write verses like verse 22? 
Was it boring to Peter to write verses like verse 18? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ as much as Peter? Jesus would challenge Peter. Lovest thou me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than the rest of the disciples love me? I'm just asking, do you love him as much as Peter did? Has he forgiven you as much as he forgave Peter? He's forgiven me more. I can't say whether I love him more or not, but I want to love him more than Peter did. What's he doing at the right hand of God? He's making intercession for us perpetually. Pleading what he's done for us on our behalf perpetually. He's a great high priest of the highest order, the order of Melchizedek. And we never have to fear anything. He's making intercession for us. What else is he doing there? He's ruling the universe with a rod of iron. What's under that rod of iron? Every level of authority in this world and the spirit world. This world and the future world. Describe it any way you want. Here's how it's worded in Ephesians 1.21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. We don't have to be afraid of what's happening in Washington, Columbia, or Greenville. Jesus Christ is ruling with the rod of iron over all of it. Well, why are certain things happening in our nation that are not in the best interests of our nation? Because our nation deserves worse, and the Lord is ruling and judging this nation. You should expect worse, but He can set a table for us in the middle of disaster. Brethren, the water... The water of the flood killed all the wicked. The water of the flood lifted up the ark above them and away from them and carried it away. So the same thing was destruction for them and salvation for the righteous. Now think about Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Persian. What was he for the Babylonians? destruction what was he for the righteous in Babylon their savior there's eight chapters about him in Isaiah 40 through 48 he called God had called him by name and right now what's happening in our country there are this nation deserves to be punished and there is wickedness that cometh from the ruler Authority is being overwhelmed before our eyes and the things that we talked about on Wednesday evening. But there is one rule that is not being touched. And the Bible says that there are feet that have been prepared to preach the gospel of peace. And this is the message. The Lord reigneth. And 1 Peter 3.22 teaches us the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns. There is no earth, there is no nation, there is no government, There is no person, there is no president, there is no Congress, Supreme Court, there are no agitators, there are no activists outside of his authority. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him in heaven, in hell, and on earth. They're all under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love him? He is showing us long-suffering. We've been together for several hours, and the fire has not come. 
We've been together for several hours and he has not split the sky open with his mighty angels coming to wreak vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that allows us? Do you know how we should account for that? Should we account that God is slack? Is God a slacker? Or should we account that God is long-suffering and it's for our salvation? Let's repent. Let's have a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith. For He is faithful that promised. He doesn't waver. Let's not waver. Let's obey. Let's repent. Let's purge our lives and serve this Lord Jesus Christ. Let's love the doctrine of baptism. Let's hate the doctrine of Jesus going to hell. Let's hate the doctrine of soul sleep. Let's love the fact that one second after you depart your body, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. Let's remember that Jesus, one second after He gave up the ghost, was in the presence of the Lord, and the thief was shortly thereafter with Him as well, after His legs were broken. In paradise, the paradise of God, We've learned things today from God's Word and by Peter's circuitous route from 1 Peter 3.18 to verse 22. I hope that it has established you and reminded you of what we believe. Let's hold these things fast and let's live in light of them. All glory to God. Amen. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.